I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 5. We'll study verses 1 and 2, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me remind you that the book of Romans is a letter from the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Rome. That This is a diverse church. It's made up of a number of different cultural groups, but the two largest would be variously divided into those who are of Jewish background or the Jewish Christians and then those who are Gentile, this catch-all group for everybody on the planet that is not of the household of Israel. And whenever Paul writes to them, he is writing uh, to establish clear doctrine. That's really his goal. Uh, Some commentators have called the book of Romans the book of the doctrine of justification by faith. And in a sense, we can say that is absolutely true. The first two chapters focus specifically on the sinfulness of man, which is a first principle for why we would need the wonderful doctrine of justification by faith, that we're sinners in need of the righteous grace of the Lord. And then in the third and the fourth chapter, Paul focuses very specifically on that doctrine, that is, justification by faith, how it is that a man, a woman, or child can be made right with the Lord their God. How can you stand before this sort of holy God, this God who in himself is the standard for all that is good and holy and just and right in this world? How can we stand before him if we are a people who have transgressed against him? And specifically in chapter 4, Paul has not only said that that standing that we can have, that righteousness that we can have, that it is by faith, but that it has always been by faith. And so in chapter 4, he pointed back to the Old Testament, uh, to the example of Abraham, even speaking briefly about David, speaking also briefly about the sacraments of the Old Testament, specifically that of circumcision. Uh, And so... He is building again and again more and more into his argument uh, that any man, woman, or child may only stand before the Lord righteous if they have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to chapter 5, there's a transition. And in verses 1 and 2, and specifically the very beginning of verse 1, we have the word therefore, or the consequence of, is how we ought to understand it logically. Because this is true... Chapters 1 through 4, therefore, these things are the result. And so we're going to study the gifts of justification uh, from these verses of Scripture. And so let's turn our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Thus far the word of the Lord of heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we have heard the reading of scripture. And we ask that you would give us understanding. Oh, Lord, help us to be people that would search your word, oh, Lord, that we might see your son. Oh, Lord, help your word 
to press our hearts and search us that we might see ourselves in the light of your righteousness and that we might know our need for a Savior. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask, O Lord, that you would bless us with it. In Jesus' name, amen. What standing does a person have before the Lord if they are not in Jesus Christ? That's a big question, but it is also a universal question. It's something that touches every single person that has been born, that is living, and that will live until the coming of the Lord. And instead of me giving you sort of a a preacher's understanding of these things, I'd rather just share with you the Apostle Paul's own words as he describes the state of man before the Lord apart from the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there, feel free. If not, I'm going to read it to you anyhow. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul gives an explanation of this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's a fairly bleak picture. We're dead. We're following a false spirit. We're children of wrath. But then in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul describes it again with these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even or ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And you see in these two passages we have a basic description of how a person stands before the Lord, or rather their relationship to him, if they're not in Christ. And it's not a good relationship. In fact, I think if we're awake this morning and sober-minded, we might say that it's a terrible relationship, that it's a terrifying relationship. Because if we were going to put it into words, and maybe one word specifically of what we are before him in relationship to the God of glory apart from Christ, we might be able to sum it up as simply enemy. Enemy. A person who is at enmity or odds or war against the Lord, the God of heaven. 
And if that doesn't cause you to tremble for a moment, then friends, wake up this morning. Because he is the one who created all things. And in his hands are all power and justice and even judgment. And I don't know about who you are or how you feel about yourself, but one of the things that I'm profoundly aware of is my own limitations. With every passing year, with every passing day, with every passing hour, more and more and more the weight of the passing of my life comes down upon me and I realize that my hands can only do so much and there is, quite frankly, so much that my hands cannot do. Me versus my God, that's terrifying. Me in opposition to the God who causes mountains to rise up by the word of his power, that's terrifying. The God who is called Yahweh Savaot, the Lord of hosts, that he directs an army of angels. And on the other side of the battle, there's me. It's terrifying. War is what characterizes the natural man, natural woman or child, their relationship against their God if the word of God is to be believed. That's the testimony. War. And the Apostle Paul, the same man who wrote both of those passages of Scripture, this morning is telling us in our passage that when we become justified, all of that changes. All of it changes. And that if we believe in his Son and are accounted righteous, if we are declared righteous because we believed in Christ, there's no longer war. There's no longer enmity, but there's peace. And there are gifts of presence. And there's future hope. And so as we take up our Bibles and study this passage, verses 1 and verse 2, I want to see three things. Consider three gifts that we receive by being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. The first in verse 1 is peace with God. The second in verse 2, the first section of verse 2, the presence of God. And then the third and the second portion of verse 2, the praise of God. Peace, presence, praise. And I do want to say simply this. Next week when we come back to the passage of Scripture, it will be the second part of this same sermon. uh, The gifts of justification. So if you think, Pastor... There's so many things you didn't even touch on. Uh, it sounds like that's a little light. It is. It's because we're going to come back to it. And so we give ourselves the freedom to do that uh, and to study less this morning. And so again, as we look at the verse, verse 1, Paul transitions from chapter 4 on his teaching a justification or our righteousness It's not had through the works of the law. It's not through the things that we have done, the moral acts that we can do. But rather, it is had by our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus is the one that fully completed the law. That all of the letter of the requirements that God has for his creatures, his people who were made in his image and after his likeness, for us, those things that we have broken, the things that we've transgressed, in the keeping of his law, that Jesus kept it fully. And that as he gives all of that to us, he does it not by works, not by just the intrinsic that makes us up, the things that are essential to us, 
but rather by our faith in him, our trust, and that it's rooted in Jesus and in his person and in his work. Not only did he keep the law and its commands, but that he also suffered the punishment that it holds against us, the things that we deserve, the punishment that we have earned through not keeping the law and also through doing the things that the law forbids us ever to do. And again, in chapter 4, Paul has said simply, that's in the Old Testament. That always has been. That's not just this New Testament revolution, this doctrinal change, this overwhelming shift from a time where men and women and children were justified or made righteous by their works, but rather even Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, he himself was accounted righteous by his faith in the promise. People have always been justified. Therefore, as he says here in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith or as a result of justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Whenever I came to this passage of Scripture and started studying, the first thing I ever do is I take it up in the Greek and I do my best to translate it. And to spend time with every word in the verse to try to understand the aspect and the the weight of the verbal forms within it. And this is a very blunt, very simple verse for a a Greek reader. It's, It's not complicated. It's not unclear. And so whenever I write out my little scribbled translation, sort of broken in its pieces... I came to the word peace, and in Greek, it's, it's plain. It's not confusing, but I'm confronted with the, the need to be able to communicate this to you. And if I say peace to you, every single one of you have some sense of what peace is. How can you not? Uh, it's not a complicated word, and it's also not a foreign word. We use it all the time, uh, whether it's in our conversations with another person, whether it's as we shout at our child, give me just three minutes of peace, Right? Or whether we're listening to the news about the state of affairs in this world and the desperate need for peace. I'm even confronted that maybe this is the single most common word upon the lips of any sort of um, celebrity. Whenever somebody asks them the question, what would you desire more than anything else? They always say world peace. But what does peace really mean? What does peace mean? really mean and you see this is one of those words that we have to consider in the context and not just in the context of Paul's writings but in the context of our relationship to the God of heaven you see there's one aspect of peace that we might otherwise translate as like tranquility or quietness and this is the sort of peace that I like to try to find at least once or twice in a week whether it's in my basement office that's away from where the children's rooms are in our house, or maybe I'm on a trail in and around Bublingen, spending time alone to get quietness and, and calm, right? The sense of tranquility where the mind can clear, where, where the pulse rate can go down. You know, that's one type of peace. And I think, friends, this is what many people consider to be peace. And I'm not saying it isn't peace. Certainly it's a type of peace. It's a, a sort of meaning for the word. But I want to tell you that what Paul has in view here, it's deeper than just a tranquility or a quietness. 
You see, there's a quietness that characterizes peace, even in the midst of what we would understand as modern and military peace. I can give an example. Uh, Think about the Korean War, the conflict between North and South Korea that the United States and other nations were engaged in for the sake of peace on the Korean Peninsula. Where is that peace maintained today? And I don't mean with nuclear arsenals or world armies with missiles pointed at one another. I'm sure that gives pause. But there's this thing, the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. It's this border between North and South Korea. And it's a place where there are guards on their side and they have a center on their side. And then on the South Korean side, there are guards and they also have personnel. And it's this this agreed upon, this treaty. We're not going to fight in this place, but it's tense. It's tight. It's, It's terrifying because it's a fragile peace. But friends, it's peace without reconciliation. It's warfare that has ceased but not a relationship that is mended. And can you see there are different kinds of peace? And the thing I want to direct you to this morning is that the peace that Paul is is pointing toward is a peace that can reflect on Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 1 and a whole group of other verses that describe the, the enmity, the broken relationship. The rebellion of man against God, his creator. The warfare of heart and mind and will and truth and falsehood. That is between creatures who have fallen in sin and their holy God. And Paul is saying, it's not only that hostility has ceased, but that a relationship has changed. There is an essential change. And that happens by justification by faith. And you might say, but pastor, where do you get this? I mean, this this verse of scripture, it's, it's not saying all the things you're saying. It's not making the distinctions that you're making uh, to take and to separate out this idea of tranquility, this idea of a demilitarized peace and then a reconciled peace. How do you see this? Well, it's because of what all Paul says. He says that it's because or since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom? Jesus Christ. And so we have to consider the thing that Jesus has done. We have to ask the question, who is he and what has he done for us? And how do we relate to him? Well, we're believing on him. That's clear enough from verse 1. That's how we're justified or included or counted righteous is by faith. But what has he done? Well, friends, there are two aspects to the work of Christ. There is his obedience in this life according to the law. He kept every command of God with perfection. He's done what is required, but that's not all. He hung on the cross and experienced the violence of the wrath of God. In his body as a representative for us, as a sacrifice for sins, as an atonement, he himself took the full measure of the wrath of God as if all of the warfare the righteous heart of God could render was poured out upon him. 
the missiles flew and they landed upon him. The curses were pronounced, the anger poured out, the justice done, and the guilt of sin completely dealt with in his body. It's not a demilitarized zone. It's not a momentary tranquility. It is that the wrath of God on our behalf has been expended. It's been poured out. The justice of God has been served against us in his body upon the tree. And so, the peace that we have with God is so much more, it's so much more than just the ceasing of hostility. It is reconciliation. It's not only that he is not willing to lift a hand against us, but rather now, after his hand has been lifted, he is willing to embrace us. There's no anger. There's no remaining guilt. There is peace between the righteous God and his reconciled creatures by faith in Jesus Christ. Wonderful peace. Reliable peace. Peace that doesn't break down. Peace that doesn't rely upon our performance, but rather upon the promise and the blood of our God. There's peace that we may have with the Lord, the God of heaven, if we have faith in Jesus, his son. Then in verse 2, we transition and Paul gives another gift, expresses another gift of the doctrine of justification and in the pursuit of alliterated list which break down so do forgive me if you will the presence of God this second gift this access to the person of the God of heaven and so Paul continues and in verse 2 he says through him through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. The language of access here ought to be understood very plainly. You can now then go where you could not otherwise go. It's something like tickets or a right. Or a passage that you may go into a place and be where you otherwise could not be. And this makes sense. Because what we've been talking about this far is is this idea that, that a sinner could be reconciled to their God. You know, that the relationship before that reconciliation was what? It was war. It was a fight. It was, it was not happy. It was full of wrath. It was a terrifying thing, in fact. Something that would have and ought to have impressed our hearts with fear. And I wonder, to put this into some terms and to give this some personal context. Have you ever been into a fight with somebody? I don't mean a fist fight. Maybe you have and maybe this comes into it a little bit. But maybe even an argument and a bad argument with somebody that you've had a relationship with. Kids, maybe with mom or dad or with friends, with brother or sister. Husbands and wives, maybe one with the other, or even with in-laws or so on and so forth. 
or anybody, just with friends, coworkers, or even strangers? Have you been in a circumstance where there's been a significant disagreement that's ripped you two apart, and then have you seen that relationship then come back together and peace be had? I have, and as a pastor, I've also counseled lots of relationships, and I've also seen the ceasefire sort of peace where hostilities end, but I wonder if you've ever experienced this where, yes, you're no longer actively fighting, yes, you can forgive that person, but you don't really want to be near them. You ever had that? Where there's peace, but it's raw. And you think to yourself, you know, I don't want to fight anymore. I want to put this behind us. But frankly, you just stay on your side of the room. I'm going to stay on my side of the room. Maybe I just need a break. Give me a month and we'll call each other after that. It's this lack of reconciliation. It's this desire that, yes, there's peace, but there's not really a relationship brought back together and mended. And what Paul is saying is that if we have faith in Jesus, it's not just that the hostility is ended between God and man, but rather that relationship comes into one again. It comes back together again. There is real and and true mending. There's access of the creatures to their God. I can illustrate this a different way, give you a sense of it. The prophet Isaiah In chapter 6, verse 5, whenever we have this wonderful vision of uh, the prophet Isaiah of the glory of God, you have this this great depiction of, of the Lord seated upon the throne in the temple, the train of his robe filling the temple, that at his voice, the foundations of the thresholds of the temple, they tremble and quake. And Isaiah, seeing all this as a simple man, He cries out as he beholds the Lord. Woe is me for I am undone. That Hebrew word that's under the word undone translated into English is for I am perishing. For I'm fearful of death. It's got that weight to it. Woe is me for I am undone. Woe is me for I'm perishing. A mortal fear. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's break this down for a second. Because Isaiah is teaching us how to understand ourselves before the Lord. Because again, he's seen just an image of the glory of the Lord in this vision. It's not even beheld the Lord to his face, but an image of the Lord in its truth and in its glory. And he's deathly afraid, and the reason he gives for that is this. I am a man of unclean lips. He's saying, that God is holy and I'm a sinner. And so he trembles. And then he thinks of himself and he simply says... Not only am I a man of unclean lips, but the whole household of my family and the the people that I dwell in the midst of, we are all a bunch of sinful people together. The language of unclean lips is the language of cursing. 
where they should have been praising. And he trembles. And he fears for his life. Because of the sinfulness of his own soul. He does not feel at home or welcome in the presence of the God of heaven. It's as if when he steps into his presence, all of his sins are revealed. And then all of the holiness of God against sin is revealed. And he's terrified. And he calls the Lord the King. The Lord of hosts. This, this word, this title of God that's military. Full of might. The God of armies trembles before him in his presence because he feels the weight of his own guilt and he feels the holiness of God. And what what is Paul saying? He's saying is he's saying if you've been justified by faith, if you've believed in Jesus and received his righteousness, this all changes. This all changes. You don't stand before the Lord clothed in guilt and fear and terror. Rather, you stand on feet in life and you rejoice and you have access to Him by the grace of the cross of Jesus. You're not terrified, but you're at home. You're like a child going to a father to sit on his knee and to hear his voice. You're not like an enemy meeting with a greater foe. But you're reconciled, the creature to the creator, an enemy now, a child of God. That's what he's saying. We have obtained access. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. No fear in life. No fear in death. This is wonderful, the thing that he's saying here. A radical change and an opportunity to be in the presence of God. Not overwhelmed with fear, but embraced by the arms of a father. You go on and in the second portion of verse 2, there's the praise of God. Again, I thought for a long time, how can I find some sort of uh, P word that's going to encapsulate this? Do forgive me uh, for this. However... The second portion of verse 2, he says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So it's not only there's no warfare, it's not only free access and acceptance and guiltlessness before him, but it's exultant praise. It's rejoicing praise now this is significant isn't it what is the language of war but gritted teeth and anger insults and mocking that's the language of warfare what would you say to your enemy but the very worst that you can muster up the very worst Somebody that you are alienated from and have no desire to be with. Who there is no peace and also no fellowship with. What happens? Well, it's not a happy point. It's at best a cold war and at worst it's even way, way more venomous. But Paul is saying, in Jesus Christ, there is not just simply reconciliation... 
but words of praise from the hearts of people who were once enemies, now made children of God. I was thinking about this passage and uh, this morning even and, and thought about a story I want to share with you. Yesterday I was driving and Elise and the boys were out at, at Panzer Kisern in Bublingen and I had Owen. And rarely am I completely alone with Owen in the car. It's usually me and the other two boys and Owen. I got all three of them or I've got none of them, one or the other. But it's just me and Owen and we're traveling and, and he's in the back and he's just chitter-chattering. He's gotten to that age at one-year-old that he's not actually using good words, but we get a whole lot of babbling. And... Uh, I'm talking to him a little bit, and I decided to turn on the radio, and I notice he's doing something, and we've not heard him do this uh, before. He's, he's kind of, you know, keeping with the tune a little bit, with his babbling, and, and he's going on and on about it, and I hear him, and he's sort of singing, and it's, you know, not with intelligible words, but with all of the little, you know, the joy of his little heart. And I'm starting to, you know, really listen. I kind of turn the music down where he can still hear it, but I'm really listening to him. And it's, it's just wonderful. It's delightful, really. Uh, impressive. Maybe not to you, but certainly to me as his father. And so what do I do as a dad? Well, I do what any good dad would do. Well, I take the song and I make an adaptation and I put his name into it. And so Rocket Man becomes Owen Man. And I'm singing along and he's laughing and we're getting closer to seeing Elise and the other boys. And we get to a, a stoplight as you do all over Stuttgart. And I'm just singing at the top of my lungs shouting, Owen man, Owen man. He's laughing and singing along. And I'm just, I'm struck with this reality. Why is he singing? Why am I singing? It's because we're happy. It's because we're happy. And this last gift, this praise of God, Paul says this, that they rejoice, that they exult, that they praise the Lord in hope of the glory of God. That a mouth that was once angered and bitter because of warfare and the sinfulness of heart and the unrighteousness of soul, is turned 180 degrees to praise. But you see, he has his eye fixed on something. There's this word hope and this wonderful truth. He says, we praise God. We rejoice in hope. And what's hope? You have a sense of it. But I want to give you a, a simple definition. Hope is faith that looks forward. It's faith that sets its eye on the horizon, if you will. It's looking for something that's coming, right? And so Paul is saying, we are rejoicing in the Lord because we're looking for something that's coming and we believe it's coming. And what does he tell you that is? The glory of God. And that's about the most full phrase I think you can get in the scriptures, the glory of God. I mean, how do you reach the heights or the depths of that one? How do you explain that? It is not less than this, though, friends. Being in his presence and seeing him in the fullness of his love and his justice and his compassion and his wrath and his kingdom and his promises and his son and 
to know the touch of his hands without fear of death, but with the assurance of life. It's not less than that. It is simple knowledge of God. We may back away from it a little bit and say Paul is looking forward to a specific glory. I think this is included therein. And the renewal of the bodies of all who believe in Christ. That is the promise that Jesus gives in the description of what will happen in the day of his return. That the dead will rise with new bodies. Bodies made whole in righteousness. That's what he says. But that's not all. Because on that day of glory when Christ returns, it's not that we'll just have new and effective bodies, but that we're going to meet him face to face. and Behold him. Behold him as he is with nail-scarred hands and feet. The resurrected Lord, not an enemy, but a friend. A king and a bridegroom to the bride. And Paul is saying, And so we rejoice. In general, what would we want to say is the great gift of justification? And it's going to cover next week's sermon as well. What is it? Our relationship restored and based on love and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son. Do you know Christ? Well, friends, if you've hoped on Him, this is what you have right now. This is yours. It's not just something in the future. This is yours, and you can cling to it right now. This is what you have received. And if you don't know the Lord, and when we have studied this this morning, and you've heard all of this teaching from the Scriptures and the reading of those two verses of Scripture, and you think to yourself, you know, that's, that doesn't sound like any sort of fun at all. That's terrifying. I want to hold forth this simple offer. If you would believe on Christ and know Him as Lord and Savior, this can freely be yours. Jesus doesn't require you to clean yourself up and then come to him. He says, come just as you are. And he receives sinners by faith, not by their works. Friends, would you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Lord, we are amazed at how you handle your people and are pleased to relate to us creatures that have provoked you. Oh, Lord, and even have denied you. Father, that you would love us and send your Son for us, that if we believe in him, we would never perish but have everlasting life. Father, we ask that you would bless our church. Lord, help us to cling to these wonderful promises. Oh, Lord, help us that we might rejoice in the hope of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.